0: It's the 4th of November, 2022. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we're going to talk about regulatory decisions. Again, more on JAK inhibitors affecting other jurisdictions outside the U.S. and an oft-repeated tale of women not doing so well if they have rheumatic disease. We're going to start with a population-based study that looked at what happens when patients with COVID, get breakthrough infections, especially if you have gout. So, this is a fairly large population based study that shows that if they were vaccinated and they had gout uh, and those who got infections with COVID, the rate was 4.68 per 1,000 patient months. If you didn't have gout, the rate was 3.76. 4.68 versus 3. Let's see, it sounds like gout patients get more gout. Oh, uh, no, gout, <laughs> that's funny, isn't it? Gout patients get more COVID. Um, and these are breakthrough infections despite vaccination. More importantly, uh, gout patients who got COVID had more hospitalizations, a 30% increased risk of hospitalizations, a 36% increased risk of COVID death. And that's with gout. This is kind of bothersome uh, because I would, you know, gout's an intermittent inflammatory condition. More importantly, if you were a woman with gout, you had a 55% increased risk of these bad outcomes with COVID. Again, women with these disorders don't do so well. Um, Another disturbing report looks at a Multinational cross-sectional analysis of, 2270 psoriatic arthritis patients. This was a survey asking them about how, how you doing, you know, about your disease, you, know, your drug use, et cetera. And again, despite um, these patients, um, all men and women with psoriatic arthritis having a comparable amount of disease duration and how they presented, and the amount of biologic use, which was over half. Um, Women in this survey fared not so well when it came to quality of life assessments, um, the amount of disability, amount of work impairment. And yet, um, you know, the comorbidities was not the issue here. Women just don't do as well. The same was actually shown, I think, in a uh, bio the a Spanish registry study of almost 1,000 axial spondyloarthritis patients, included about a third of the patients were women. This is a survey of what went on with TNF uh, inhibitor use and response, non-response between uh, a 20 year period from 2000 to 2019, showed that a non-response as measured by a BASDI-50 was less likely in women, significantly less likely in women than men. Um, it was also less likely in those who were older in age at the start of their TNF inhibitor therapy. This is a big challenge in rheumatology that keeps, keeps coming up and yet is not really being addressed. Meaning, what is it that we have to do here? Is it we have to create greater awareness? Do we have to be more aggressive? Do we need special programming? Do we need to do you know, some subset analysis to look at factors that may be more influential in women. We do know in spondyloarthritis, women tend to present later, tend to have more pain, tend to have a different quality and uh, or phenotype of disease, if you will. But it's a big challenge that's not currently being addressed. A single center study uh, looked at gout from, this is from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. It was a recent gout meeting. And the report that came out of their experience of 72 patients who went to the emergency department for their treatment as they were seen, discharged, uh, whatnot, usual therapies you would expect. Two-thirds were on steroids. Um, Two-thirds received opioids. Maybe that's higher than I'd expect. 43% non-steroidals, 32% colchicine. That's good. I like seeing less colchicine. You don't need colchicine to manage gout. But the really disturbing bit here is that uh, only 36% of those patients seen in the emergency room uh, were actually uh, seen with a follow-up visit in the UAB clinics for their gout. That's disturbing. I don't necessarily believe it's the fault of the ED department as much as it's probably the fault of the patients, who we know are quite nomadic and not always great about following up and managing gout as a chronic illness as opposed to an episodic illness. This is another challenge. A study from China looked at 109 patients with MPO anca positive vasculitis and found those that also had anti-GBM antibodies. Overall, they had um, 20 patients who were double positive for MPO and GBM. They looked at patients who were only GBM positive, only patients who were uh, MPO positive, and basically they showed that double positive patients had higher creatinines, lower GFRs, I guess that's higher GFRs, um, and they had more cardiac damage, than patients who had just anti-GBM antibodies. That would be expected. But they also had other organ damage outside the kidney. So I can't say I've seen many of these patients, but it does seem to fit along with other things that we've shown in rheumatology. Double positivity seems to, have, I guess, be a, uh, a a label, if you will, that might have prognostic importance. Certainly true in RA, maybe true in lupus, where a multiplicity of autoantibodies, especially certain combinations involving double-stranded DNA, SM, and Rho, et cetera, might also have worse disease. I put up a, a quick little review about drug-induced hepatotoxicity. Not, I think as a reminder for rheumatologists, you know the drugs that you have to monitor uh, liver function tests on. But this includes acetaminophen, azathioprine, allopurinol, cyclosporin, dapsone, gold, who uses gold anymore, methotrexate, 6-mercaptopurine, non-steroidals, um, aspirin, sulfasalazine, minocin. I think in that group, the surprises, the ones that we may not be monitoring LFTs on are patients on chronic Tylenol, patients on minocin, patients on dapsone gold, you know, maybe even non need to be um, checked every now and then. Now, this is just meaning they get elevated LFTs. It doesn't necessarily mean that they all get like liver failure or anything like that. That's obviously a smaller, much smaller subset. Uh, another analysis recently looked at opportunistic infections in psoriatic arthritis patients, those that were on either biologic DMARDs or targeted synthetic DMARDs, And basically, the number is really quite low, you know, 1%, 2%, something like that. Again, this is a meta-analysis of 47 studies, 18,000 patients, they looked at the risk according to um, the mechanism of action of the drug, and JAK inhibitors had an OI risk overall. This is all the OIs, right? And so that would be TB, non tuberculous mycobacteria, zoster, et cetera, of 2.7%. It was lower with the IL 17 inhibitors at 1.2%, and even lower with the anti IL 23 monoclonal antibodies of 0.24%. You know, generally, safety parameters in psoriatic arthritis, in psoriasis, are much better looking than they are in RA and IBD. The numbers are lower. And so in this population, it looks like if you're looking just at the unusual occurrence uh, of OIs, you know, maybe your safest drugs might be IL-23. Wait, I didn't give you the TNF inhibitor numbers. It's 0.01%. It's even lower. Now, maybe it's because we are reg- better regimented at doing screening with TNF inhibitors, but so the lowest is TNF, then IL-23, then IL-17, and the highest would be JAK at 2.7, largely driven by a higher risk of zoster, 2.53% um, those, in those who are taking JAK inhibitors. The candidate risk is only about 1% in patients on IL-17 inhibitors. Um, uh, bad news regulatory wise, GSK announced that they halted development of their anti-GMCSF monoclonal antibody called otilimab. Um, this is really, while well, their phase two studies looked good, their phase three contrast three study was the name of the study failed to meet its primary endpoint of an ACR20, uh, and that was a study, the, the contrast three study was done with this anti gmcsf monoclonal antibody in patients who had failed a biologic DMARD or a JAK inhibitor. Uh, that's no longer in play for the future. An odd little comparison of relapsing polychondritis and uh, a GPA, what we used to call Wegener's, looked at, is there a difference on chest CT? I don't really think a relapsing polychondritis is having much on chest CT at all, Um, and a lot with GPA. Well, this comparison of 26 patients with GPA, 19 with relapsing polychondritis, they found basically it's airway disease, and subglottic um, uh, disease was really limited, meaning beyond the airways, uh, was limited to GPA. So the odds ratio of parenchymal and subglottic disease was 29-fold, With GPA, and the odds ratios for extensive airway disease was about, uh, was significantly higher with um, um, relapsing polychondritis. I think sort of an expectation. I think the big news this week was the EMA finally announcing what was um, a really long analysis, almost a year now, that they've been looking at this issue of of jack inhibitors and what the labeling should be Uh, throughout the European Union. As you know, September of 2021, the FDA came down with a decision putting a box warning on all the jack inhibitors based on the tofacitinib data that was generated in the oral surveillance study. And there was was a box warning for, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular death, uh, VTEs, um, cancer, right? So the EMA, um, now after their analysis, their safety committee called the PRAC um, has now made a recommendation that JAK inhibitors have certain uh, restrictions. This is a recommendation that's going to go forward for consideration by the CHMP. And after they review it, they'll issue a final recommendation, which is probably going to be in line with the PRAC's recommendation. The recommendation being that uh, JAK inhibitors not be used in patients with the following risks. Age over 65. Number two, risk factors for major cardiovascular problems like heart attack and stroke. Three, chronic tobacco use. And four, a history of cancer not be used, recommendation, that not be used in those situations. And and, and they put in the exception that you might consider using JAK inhibitors when the patient has exhausted other treatment options. That's distinctly different than the FDA decision that says, use a TNF inhibitor before you use a JAK inhibitor. Now, their other recommendation was that, again, there, you need to worry about patients um, and, and exercise caution in patients who have either venous thromboembolism or risk of venous thromboembolism. That's all very important, right? So the major differences here are a, a few. Again, these do apply to the, all the marketed JAK inhibitors in the EU. That includes uh, upadacitinib, um, uh, Rinvoke. Uh, tofacitinib and Sibingo, um, c- c- that's actually for skin disease, Pfizer's um, what's, I can't remember the name of the, the JAK inhibitor name there because it's a skin drug um, uh, baricitinib and filgotinib, uh, marketed by Giselica in the U as Giselica. Um it applies to all those, it doesn't apply to the other drugs that are used for myelofibrosis, that's uh, JAKOFI and Inrebic. Um, now, interestingly, e- the EMA, we have to wait for their final recommendation. It'll come probably next six weeks would be by six, six, uh, rec- my guess here. But at the same time, Canada has updated its um, labeling for jack inhibitors, um, and it includes the same warnings of um, MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events fatal venous thromboembolic events, and cancer risk, all based on the tofacitinib. And then based on the mechanism of action, they apply these to the other drugs that you know and use beyond Zell includes Rinvoke and Illumiant um, and Simbingo. But they actually put a warning in here for the drugs that are used for um, myelofibrosis, a little stronger for in Rebic. And they're evaluating JAKOFI, uh, Um, These are two bilingual fibrosis drugs that don't have that warning, box warning in the FDA, but are going to get a warning in Canada. So, again, this is evolving in different countries. An interesting report uh, this week in um, Lancet Rheumatology uh, said that during the pandemic... Um, we probably have underdiagnosed inflammatory arthritis, especially rheumatoid arthritis. And this is an analysis of of, of a data set that they have that um, there are over 31,000 patients with new diagnoses between March 2019 and March of 2022 before the pandemic and then after the pandemic. And they showed in the first year of the pandemic, the number of newly recorded inflammatory arthritis RA fell by 20%. Compared to that in the former year, noting that actually the numbers have been either fairly stable or going up um, a little bit, this drop of twenty percent they 're attributing to the pandemic, and that a patients were not seeking help b patients were falling into the hands of of everyone other than you, the rheumatologist and they didn 't talk about this but c you 're to blame and you 're to blame because when the panic hit of the pandemic, what was your plan to instruct all your patients about how to behave? Now, you can't take responsibility for patients that are not yet yours, but we really didn't do a good job. I mean, we were struggling, as everyone was, to, you know, day-to-day what to do next. But I think one of the things that I know I didn't do well, and my institution didn't do well, is we didn't have an automatic reach out to all our patients with some rules and updated them, you know, periodically every two, three months, On rules about seeking care and getting follow-up tests and whatnot. Anyway, I found this to be a very interesting report. One of the consequences of this, and again, even after um, the pandemic was in better control, and uh, we still, in the 2021 to 2022, the numbers still hadn't gone up, and still were in that sort of low. incidence rate for new diagnoses, meaning we still have to get people back into the clinic and reestablish those referral patterns. Um, Our last report is about patients with lupus and achieving um, a low disease activity state. So we do know that treat-to-target in lupus has certain outcomes that are good, um, certain organ function and quality of life uh, patients do better with treat the target in lupus. But uh, when it comes to actually survival, we don't actually have that data. And so this is a, an analysis uh, from the Asia Pacific lupus collaboration where they have a cohort of 3,811 SLE patients followed prospectively from 2013 to 2020. And, and in that time, only 80 died. So the mortality rate was 6.4 deaths per 1,000 patient years. And then they compared the 80 to the over 3,700 who were alive at the end of the analysis. And they showed that if you achieve an ll at least once, that um, you are more likely to live um, than not. So the ll more than once was seen in 54% of the dead and 81% of the alive patients. That was highly, highly significant. If you looked at LL-DAS that was sustained for more than 50% of the time, it was still very significantly in favor of those who are alive, meaning measuring makes you live. 53% versus 28% amongst those who were deceased. Turns out if you achieve remission by LL-DAS, you didn't do much better. That it actually that didn't. But if you achieve remission off steroids, that, again, was highly significant favoring those alive. The point being here that um, treat-to-target works in lupus, now measuring mortality. The other thing is, it begs the question, what are you doing to treat-to-target your patients with lupus? What's your measure other than, I know it when I see it. This is what I, I can spot active. And, but are you using a score? Are you using a sleet eye? Are you using LL-dash? Should be using something simple. Again, I think this is a, an unmet need in rheumatology. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can go to the website to check out these citations and more. Next week we begin. Um, it'll be the day before ACR begins. We got a lot of plans. You're going to love it. A lot of real time things happening. You can look real time and listen to podcasts that just happened today and yesterday. You can look at videos at things that just happened today. It's going to be really exciting. We've got a great faculty. Follow us on Twitter. You'll see all the faculty that we're going to have covering the meeting. They're talented. They're prolific. They're really interesting. You're going to enjoy our coverage. We'll see you next week. Take care.